Merry Christmas. Yeah, so the snow, we were, we were driving to Hershey yesterday to go do some shopping, and we were, just, we were amazed how many people were out on the road with the snow coming down, and I thought, this thought occurred to me, like, what if every time it snowed, like, it was either ingrained in us, like, habitually, or if it was, like, mandated that we had to suddenly get in the Christmas spirit and go shopping and buying gifts for each other, how much better would snow be in the winter? You know, instead of all the complaining about, oh, here comes the snow again, be like, oh, Christmas, hang the lights, let's, you know, let's be in, be in good cheer. I think we should institute that. We, we've got Christmas in April, it's beautiful outside, it's a little cold, but it's nice to be here. Glad to see everyone. For those that don't know me, I am Barry, I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone. Uh, it's my pleasure and privilege today to, to be bringing the word. Um, if you have your Bibles, our text today is going to be First Peter we're going to be in First Peter. We might jump around to some other places, but First Peter is probably where we're going to be most of the time. Um, so if you want to have that ready, um, great. Uh, before we do that, though, um, today, well, well, today we're, we're sort of starting the first substantive week on a series about confessing Christ. We had just finished a series of consuming Christ where we explored the Eucharist, communion, what that means for the body of Christ um, today, um, what it has meant historically. Today we are starting the first substantive week on a new series called Confessing Christ. Justin gave a great introductory uh, message last week. I know a lot of you couldn't be here. Um, please, please, please go back, uh, download his message from the podcast and listen to it because it sets the stage for a lot of what we're going to be doing for the next uh, few weeks. I don't, I don't know how long, um, maybe a couple of months. So um, please go listen to the podcast on the introductory of of consuming Christ. Before we get deeply into it, um, is, is anyone else like me where you get intellectually curious about something and, and this thing sticks in your head and you can't get it out of your head and you get kind of obsessed with something? And, and, and like you may, you may like over time forget about it, but you always come back to the subject. Is anyone else like that or am I the only one? Okay, cool. Um, how many of you have heard of the Shroud of Turin? Raise your hand if you've heard of the Shroud of I am absolutely obsessed with the Shroud of Turin. I've been obsessed with the Shroud of Turin for decades. My mom's here, and she will tell you that um, for a long time, whenever I would go to visit, there was a Time magazine on their coffee table, and it was like from 1999 or something, but it was about the Shroud of Turin. For years, every time I would visit my mom, I would read this article on the Shroud of Turin. I'm obsessed with the Shroud of Turin. For those of you that don't know what the Shroud of Turin is, it's this 14, it's approximately 14 foot long linen cloth, and it's about four feet wide, and on this cloth is an image of a man. Now, now the cloth is ancient, it's, they, they know it's at least 700 years old, and, and, and some people have dated it to well over 2,000 years old. This cloth, this 14 foot long cloth, has an image of a man on this cloth, and no one knows how the image got there. Um, there's been tests run on it multiple, multiple times. Scientists have done batteries of tests. 95 scientists at one time did all sorts of radiological, photographic tests on this cloth, and there's this image of this man, and it's a three-dimensional image, and no one can state scientifically how the image got there. Uh, but the image is an image of front and back, so on, on half of the cloth, on seven feet of it, under seven feet of it, about five, five something feet of it. There's this, the frontal image of a man, and on the other seven feet of the cloth, there's the back image of the same man. And it's, and it's on this cloth, and nobody, 
Nobody knows how it got there, but it's clearly the image of somebody that was, that was killed by crucifixion. Um, I'm going to read, this is one of the many books, I'm privileged enough to have a father-in-law that is also intellectually inquisitive all the time, and keeps a library of intellectually inquisitive books, and I, I stole this from him, um, brought it home the last time we were in Ohio, and I brought this home. This is, um, this is a, I want to get this right, a coroner and forensic pathologist of Los Angeles County. This is his assessment of the image that's on the cloth. Now, I don't know if this forensic um, scientist believes that the shroud is the actual burial cloth of Jesus. That's the question. Is the shroud of Turin the actual burial cloth of Jesus? Is the image on this thing actually Jesus Christ? I, I'm a believer, but... Um, this, is, this is the... Uh, and and that, that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. But this is the, the, the coroner and forensic pathologist of Los Angeles County. This was an assessment he made in the 1970s. Irrespective of how the images were made, there is adequate information here to state that they are anatomically correct. There is no problem in diagnosing what happened to this individual. And again, this is a scientific assessment. The pathology and physiology are unquestionable and represent medical knowledge unknown even 150 years ago. This is a 5 foot 11 inch male weighing about 178 pounds. The lesions are as follows. Beginning at the head, there are blood flows from numerous puncture wounds on the top and back of the scalp and forehead. The man has been beaten about the face. There is a swelling over one cheek and he undoubtedly has a black eye. His nose tip is abraded as would occur from a fall and it appears that the nasal cartilage may have separated from the bone. There is a wound in the left wrist, the right one being covered by the left hand. This is the typical lesion of a crucifixion. The classical, artistic, and legendary portrayal of a crucifixion with nails through the palms of his hands, uh, through the palms of the hands is spurious. The structures in the hand are too fragile to hold the live weight of a man, particularly of this size. Had a man been crucified with nails in the palms, they would have torn through the bones, muscles, and ligaments, and the victim would have fallen off the cross. There is a stream of blood down both arms. Here and there, there, is blood, there are blood drips at an angle from the main blood flow in response to gravity. These angles represent the only ones that can occur from the only two positions which can be taken by a body during crucifixion. On the back and on the front, there are lesions which appear to be scourge marks. Historians have indicated that Romans used a whip called a flagrum. This whip had two or three thongs, and at their ends there were pieces of metal or bone which looked like small dumbbells. These were designed to gouge out flesh. The thongs and metal end pieces from a Roman flagrum fit precisely into the anterior and posterior scourge lesions on the body. The victim was whipped from both sides by two men, one of whom was taller than the other as demonstrated by the angle of the thongs. There's a swelling of both shoulders with abrasions indicating that something heavy and rough had been carried across the man's shoulders within hours of death. On the right flank, a long, narrow blade of some type entered in an upward direction, pierced the diaphragm, penetrated into thoracic cavity through the lung into the heart. This was a post-mortem event because separate components of red blood cells and clear serum drained from the lesion. Later, after the corpse was laid out horizontally, and face up on the cloth, blood dribbled out of the side wound and puddled along the small of the back. There is no evidence of either leg being fractured. There is an abrasion of one knee, commensurate with a fall, as is the abraded nose tip, and finally, a spike had been driven through both feet, and blood had leaked from both wounds onto the cloth. 
the evidence of a scourged man who was crucified and died from the cardiopulmonary failure typical of crucifixion is clear-cut. I am absolutely obsessed by this cloth. And this picture um, up there is the, on the left side is, is, is an image uh, taken from the Shroud of Turin. The right side is an image of, it's an ancient, an old church image of what they thought Jesus looked like. They think this image on the right even predates the time when the Shroud of Turin came into modern knowledge, about 1300. So if you, you can see that this, the, this artist, it appears that the artist was, was painting off of the Shroud of Turin. I am absolutely obsessed by the Shroud. Hopefully, by the end of this morning, you'll sort of understand a little bit more why. Again, today is not about whether the Shroud of Turin is the real burial cloth of Jesus. I just want to get that out there. This isn't a, this isn't a, a sermon about the Shroud of Turin. You know? I'm not trying to convince you. But this is something that, has, um, a, a, that I've been obsessed with for 20 years. And when it comes to confessing Christ, it has a, has a specific um, sort of place in my mind. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll get to that and that place will be sort of clear to you as well. Um, but I just wanted to, to share that. So that's the image that you're looking at up there. Um, and we're just going to move on from that point. Hopefully it'll all become clear very soon. Um, as I mentioned last week, Justin gave us an introductory uh, teaching on a Confessing Christ series. And Justin mentioned a couple of things about um, where he was taking us last week. There's three places we can go um, when we explore the scripture and, and, and when, we, when we try to understand what it means to confess Christ. The first is alignment, that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, to care about the things that God cares about. God wants our hearts and our minds to be aligned with his thinking. He wants our heart to be aligned with God's heart. He wants our minds to be aligned with his mind. He wants our mouths, which are connected to our hearts, to speak the things that God would say. That's alignment. The second one is enlightenment, which is show us your glory. So this is... um, if you remember a few years ago, we did a, we did a, we, we as Cornerstone explored um, some principles, and one of them was confession. Do you remember what confession is? We talked about what it means to confess. Confession is to see the same as, or to say the same as God. So confession at its heart is to see and say the same things that God sees and says. That's alignment. That's bringing um, us Uh, the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we will know what is the hope of his calling out of Ephesians 1.18. That's alignment. So once we've we've gotten, uh, or that's enlightenment. Uh, Once we've gotten alignment, then we have God enlighten us to, to, to bring us his truth, to show us what it is that he would have us confess that we can see and say the same as God. And then the last is wisdom. In what ways are we called to deliver the gospel? As Justin put it, this is the how. Like when we talk about confessing Christ, the, the wisdom is the how. How do we actually go about confessing Christ? Today, as I've thought about what, what I wanted to share today, I really want us to focus primarily on the first two, alignment and enlightenment. This morning is about alignment and enlightenment. So aligning our hearts and our minds to God's heart and mind, and then inviting him to enlighten us what that means. It's going to sound maybe a little bit like the how, but please understand this is not the how. If God speaks through his spirit to you and gives you wisdom as to the how, then embrace it. But this morning, uh, what I want to share to you is not about the how. It's about the alignment and the enlightenment of confession of Christ. Um, At its core, I think, you know, the Christian community, the church, 
when we think about confessing Christ, we've got one concept that, that perpetually comes up, and that's this concept of being a witness, right? Being a witness. Uh, Jesus said right before he ascended into heaven in Acts 1.8 that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the church today still adopts that, and we say that we are Christ's witnesses. So today, I want us to think about that in terms of alignment and enlightenment. What does it mean for us to be a witness? And I think it's important, especially because it's a good starting point. Um, A lot of you um, may have experience and may have a great deep calling to be witnesses and you preach and maybe you've been foreign missionaries and you go. Maybe you've done street preaching. Maybe it's a rhythm of your life that you are, are one who shares the gospel regularly. My hunch is that if you're like me, <laughs> you're, if, if, if you're like that, you're in a minority and you're more likely to be like me. Someone that, uh, as, as a place of confession, struggles with that. That is not who I am. That is not who I have traditionally been. So to bring a message about you know, what it means to be a witness, I think it's important for me and for us to kind of start at that first place. And Justin sort of um, clued us in to, to one of those places. He looked at two, and the first one is this, this, this idea of paralysis. And out of uh, John 12, uh, Justin shared this passage. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the even of the authorities, many, even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Um, so this idea of confession paralysis, this idea that the fear of leaders or the fear of losing the glory of man or maybe the desire to have the glory of man over the glory of God is something that leads many of us, myself included, into a place that I call confession paralysis. Outside of the safe space of Cornerstone and, and the stage and the, and the ability to preach and teach, it is very difficult for me, I confess, to be one who is an active witness of Jesus Christ. I suffer very deeply from confession paralysis. Um, you don't need to raise your hand. You may if you want to, but is there anyone else out there that feels the same way? Yeah. <laughs> this is common, right? This is a condition of who we are as Christians. Um, this morning, Ryan read a really beautiful passage about a miracle that Jesus performed. I'm going to read the same story to you out of a different, uh, out of a different book. Um, uh, Ryan read it out of Mark. I'm going to read it to you out of Matthew. And this is the story of of Jesus healing a paralyzed man. As we talk about confession paralysis, I thought it would be good to explore how Jesus healed a paralyzed man because it speaks to us. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, 
your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. The thing I love about this story is Jesus is, is, is faced with a man that's paralyzed. Now, if somebody was paralyzed and came in front of us, what would our immediate thought be as to the condition of the man that needs to be corrected or healed? Paralysis, right? We would immediately think that here is a man in need of healing of paralysis, and what does Jesus do? He forgives his sin. Jesus sees the man for who he is and sees that paralysis, my son, is not your problem, but forgiveness of sins is your problem. Cornerstone, if you don't hear anything else today from me, hear this. You are free from the shame and guilt of being a paralyzed confessor of Christ. If you're like me, you feel that very deeply, right? I mean, Jesus said that you will be my witnesses. The last thing he said to his disciples was go into all the world, preach the gospel, making disciples. And maybe you, like me, think I have done a pretty bad job of making disciples. I have done a pretty bad job of preaching the gospel. But hear this. There is no shame or guilt. You are free from shame and guilt. We talked about this at Easter. The whole point of Christ dying on the cross And rising again from the dead was to set captives free. If you, like me, are a captive to paralysis, there is no shame or guilt. You are forgiven. God did not speak shame and guilt on you when he gave us all his his commission. You hear that? If you take nothing else from today, hear that. Because that is the first starting point for us today. When we go down a road of talking about confessing Christ, if we cannot get over our shame and guilt for not being good witnesses, then we will never be good witnesses. So hear me, you are forgiven. God took that even to the cross. God took that and destroyed that shame and guilt as well. So you, Cornerstone, are free from the shame and guilt of confession paralysis. Amen? Amen. That provides us a very good starting point to go from there. Um, today we're going to take, I think, is a, what I, I like to think of as the baby steps of being a witness. Uh, again, it's not the how, but it's the baby steps of aligning and enlightening ourselves to see what it means to be a witness. Uh, as I think about it, the term that came to my brain is um, this idea of passive aggressiveness. Now, have you heard of the term passive aggressiveness? Passive aggressiveness is a concept that is, it's a bad thing, okay? Passive aggressiveness, especially in interpersonal relationships, is not a good thing. For example, my birthday. Every year for my birthday, I don't like birthday cake. My mom has made pumpkin pie for me every year since I was a kid. Pumpkin pie is my birthday cake. Now, passive aggressiveness says on my birthday, if you're at the party and there's the pie there, there's one slice of pie, the passive aggressive me would say, no, no, no. I don't want this this uh, tasty, wonderful, last piece of pumpkin pie. It's my birthday, and I really want you to have it. 
The translation of that is what? Hands off the last piece of pumpkin pie. That's passive aggressivity, right? I, I am not suggesting today that we take that sort of approach uh, to being witnesses and confessors of Christ, but there is something actually pretty biblical about a passive-aggressive stance of being a witness. And I want us to be open to this concept because um, there's, a, there's, a piece of, there's, there's a piece of Scripture in 1 Peter, and this is where we go to 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Peter um, chapter 3. 1 Peter is towards the end of your Bible, right before 2 Peter. Um, yeah, weird how that works. And now I can't find it, even though I've got it tabbed. Okay, um, chapter 3 of 1 Peter. There's a passage that um, the church hears a lot, um, that is preached a lot in terms of what it means to be a witness. And this passage, I, I want us to dwell on it for a little bit, because this idea of being a passive-aggressive witness um, in, a, in a better way, in a redeemed way, is right here in the text. Um, so it's uh, verses 13 to 17 of chapter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. This, uh, this text is often pulled out. And, and, and shown to us as an example of what it means to be a witness for Christ. What are the, what's, if, if you've heard this before in the context of witness, what are the key concepts that have probably stood out to you the most? I would suggest the first one is this idea of always being prepared to make a defense, right? If you have heard it said that you as a Christian always need to be ready to make a defense for your faith in any circumstance, this is the passage that was always preached to you, right? That's what the text says. Always be prepared to make a defense. And so we get in this place where we think being a witness means knowing all the answers, right? Being able to defend my faith as well as I possibly can so that it's airtight, so nobody can get inside of it, so that nothing can tear this thing down, so that you, friend, will come to believe Jesus Christ, right? You need to be prepared to make a defense at all times for your faith. I mean, wars have been fought in defense of the Christian faith before, centered largely upon this passage that we need to defend our faith. Always be prepared to make a defense for our faith. That's aggressive, aggressive witnessing. I don't think that's what the text says. Within the text, there are a couple of implied conditions before we are to be prepared to make a defense, which I'm suggesting is the sort of passive-aggressive approach to being a witness, which is actually wrapped up in freedom. Remember, Jesus came to set captives free. This text is filled with freedom. The first implied condition is to anyone who asks you, right? Be prepared. Always be prepared to make a defense. The implied condition is to anyone that asks you. There's some rest in that, right? 
Like, it's not to say that we are not to preach the gospel. Again, this is not the wisdom, the how to be a witness. But taking this text for what it says to anyone that asks you. Be prepared to anyone that asks you. To me, that's like a huge weight thrown off my shoulders. Now, I don't know. Well, I do know. Peter did not write this letter to 20th or 21st century Americans. I know this because it wasn't written in English, and that's all we speak, for the most part. Now, he did not write this to 21st century Americans, um, but this sounds a lot like um, what we traditionally would relate to as being legal witnesses, right? If you've seen the shows, like you've seen a witness pulled up to the stand and asked a bunch of questions and they have to answer. That idea of being a witness sounds very much like what we are familiar with. This concept of being at a court, asked questions, and having to make a defense at that point. Right? There's some rest in that. Like, when I am called, then I need to be prepared to give a defense. Now, I have another confession to make. I am a practicing lawyer. The silver lining to that cloud is that I have had a lot of experience in seeing witnesses. And I've seen both good witnesses, and I've seen very bad witnesses. But the best witnesses are the ones that, when they are asked, know what they're talking about and are able to give a defense for their position. I want to give an illustration. For this illustration, I'm going to need a volunteer. Jake. Uh, Bring a chair, because this court, it's budget reasons. Um, Witnesses have to provide their own chairs. So, Um, Yeah. In in case you're wondering, face me, please, face the court. Um, oh yeah, you need the mic. Um, in, in case you're wondering, Jake agreed to this. So I, I, I think there's probably a lot of you that um, don't sit in the front row because you either think that you're going to contract something by sitting close to Jake and, and that's going to be that you're going to be the next volunteer. Um, I just want to give you some rest in knowing that you are welcome to sit in the front row. If you sit in the front row, the preachers are still going to pick on Jake, Okay. <laughs> He, he is, he's kind of our, our set witness. Can you please stand? You raise your right hand. Do you affirm today that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes. Thank you. You may sit. Uh, would you please state your name for the record? Jacob Ryan Feld. And you live here in Lebanon? I do. Yeah. Uh, precisely where in Lebanon do you live? Uh, upstairs. <laughs> so you, you've got a really long commute to get here on Sunday. Yeah. One might say that. Pretty tough. But you're not originally from Lebanon, Pennsylvania, are you? No, I'm not. You're actually from Missouri? That is correct. St. Louis? That is also correct. And you moved here when you were how old? 18. So for 18 years of your life, the first 18 years, you lived in St. Louis, Missouri? Yes. Do you ever go home to St. Louis, Missouri? Yes. Do you drive? Sometimes. How else do you go? Plane. Do you fly the plane? I purchase a ticket and okay. let someone else fly the plane. Okay. <laughs> so you ride in a plane to go back to St. Louis, Missouri. Correct. Or you drive your car. Correct. Are you an auto mechanic, Mr. Feld? I am not. No. Do you maintain your car? Do you give it a full inspection before you drive? How, how long of a drive is it to St. Louis? 13 or 14 hours. 13, 14 hours. Before you take that 13 or 14 hour drive, do you do a full inspection of your car to make sure that it's ready to go? Not at all. No. 
You just get in your car, turn the key, and go. Yes. You're married to Steph. She's here in the courtroom today. That's correct. Does she drive the car on occasion, too, on these trips to St. Louis? On occasion. Does she do a full inspection of the car? She does not. No. Do you understand how an internal combustion engine works? <laughs> Loosely. Can you explain to the jury how the internal combustion engine works? Um, you insert a fuel of some kind into the engine, which, through various mechanisms... <laughs> that you don't know. That I don't understand. Okay, right, <laughs> right, right, okay, all right. It combusts uh, internally. But you're just willing... You're just, you're just willing to trust the car to get you from Lebanon, Pennsylvania to St. Louis, Missouri. True. Okay. Let's talk about when you fly. Uh, you, you've already said that you do not fly the plane. Right. Are you a pilot? I'm not. Have you ever taken any flight lessons? No. Do you, uh, are you familiar with the principles of flight? <laughs> Some. <laughs> can, you, can you explain to the jury what you know about the principles of flight? Uh... That the angle of the wing causes, as it's going faster and faster, the air comes underneath, it lifts the wing, and eventually lifts the whole plane. Okay. Are you familiar with the concept of thrust, drag, yaw, roll, pitch? Do those mean anything to you? In different contexts. In different contexts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, but you're willing, w- would you recognize that those are the basic principles of flight? Have you ever heard of that in that context? In the context of flying an airplane? Maybe some of them. Okay. But you just trust that these, that these principles of flight are going to work on this airplane when you get in it? Yes. You do? Yep. Just trust it? Yep. Okay. Um, you have diabetes, don't you? <laughs> I do. How long have you known that you have diabetes? Uh, it's 2001, so 13. Years? In, it's 14 so years? 15 years. 15. Well, I tur- I'm thinking age-wise. I was 12, turning 13 that year. How old am I now? 27. Yeah, <laughs> forgot how old I was. That was the problem with my So, mind. So you, you've known that, that you're a diabetic for 15 years. Yep. You found out when you were in high school or? Middle school. Middle school. Middle school. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Uh, it was to very, find out. It was very difficult. Um, I honestly, I don't even, other than I know my grandpa has diabetes, I don't even know where I had been, like, exposed to the idea before, but I knew what it was, and um, basically my mom had seen some uh, telltale signs of his concern, so we went to the doctor, and it was one that they checked either my blood or or my urine, and uh, basically said, you should probably go to the hospital, we don't know for sure, And, and actually this was literally the weekend before I started seventh grade, so I was in the hospital Friday, Saturday, Sunday, went to school the next day, and had a whole new thing to do with my and life. And did that change your life? Definitely. Yeah. Has it been, seems like it'd be pretty tough. It was. Yeah. I've seen you, I mean, we, we've eaten together on more than one occasion. I've seen you take your insulin shots. You do insulin shots every day. Mm-hmm. How many times a day? Uh, four or five. Do you ever just get tired of it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you ever wish it would just go away? Yep. Yep. You ever just get so frustrated with it, you're just done. Mm-hmm. Yep. But you keep going. Mm-hmm. What happens if you don't? Uh, <laughs> get ill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, just a last few set of questions. You have some brothers, right? Mm-hmm. How many brothers do you have? Four? Uh, three brothers. Three brothers. Three brothers. And one of your brothers 
is named Ben. Mm-hmm. And Ben has a condition as well. Mm-hmm. What is Ben's condition? Uh, he has Asperger's syndrome. Asperger's syndrome. Can you explain what that, how that sort of manifests itself mm-hmm. uh, in Ben? Uh, so Asperger's syndrome is considered part of autism spectrum disorder. Um, and so for him, uh, he very much needs routine, gets very frustrated and upset when things don't go how he expects them to go or would like them to go. Um, he also has incredible memory. <laughs> um, so he, uh, one of the things he likes to do is he's very obsessed with uh, movies and TV and video games, and he sort of creates these stories either in his mind or like actually writes them on the computer, like merging characters from different uh, and does all the voices and everything uh, from different shows and sort of creates these like meta <laughs> mixtures of, of stories based on things that he's experienced and just logs them all back <laughs> in his brain. Is Ben older or younger than you? He is older. He's older than you. Do you, do you happen to know um, what that was like for your family to find out that, that Ben had Asperger's syndrome? Uh, I mean, I was pretty young. I mean, I don't have a memory before Asperger's because mm-hmm. he's two years older than me, and I think he was five when he found out. Uh, It was very challenging at the time, especially because so little was known about autism in general. And uh, I've heard from from my mom that basically when they, you know, the doctor told them this is the diagnosis, they kind of just said, good luck, we don't have any resources Mm -hmm. for you. And they had to figure everything out on their own, Um, even in, in schools, which now tend to do very well with trying to support kids on the autism spectrum, like the schools had no support, they had like nothing. My mom had to do a lot of work herself to like go into the schools and educate the teachers and the classes on, you know, what the experience was like for Ben in terms of being sensory overload and, you know, getting upset by things that you would think not wouldn't upset yeah. a normal person and yeah. yeah. Are there times when when Ben's condition is very difficult on your family? Mm-hmm. Are there times when it's frustrating? Mm-hmm. Are there times when you just you, you feel very tired? Of, of Ben's condition. Mm-hmm. But I've seen you with Ben. I've seen you with your family. And when you're around him, you're smiling. Mm-hmm. You, you love being around your brothers, mm-hmm. to include Ben. Why is that? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I love him. I mean, yeah. he's frustrating sometimes, but <laughs> he's amazing. He's hilarious. Yeah. And, uh, just, yeah, his, his life is different than mine. His perspective is different than mine. But yeah. it's fun to learn. Yeah. How he sees the world. And he's your brother. And he's my brother. Thanks. Let's give Jake a hand. Last word about um, what you just saw there. I, Jake was not caught by surprise. He didn't know what questions I was going to ask, ask him, but I asked him in advance if I could explore those two last subjects. So that wasn't just thrown on him. That was something that we had agreed to ahead of time. But he didn't know what questions I was going to ask, and I think Jake did a really great job. Pretty good witness, huh? At least for half. What was... What was the difference between the first half of Jake's testimony and the second half of Jake's testimony? The first half of his testimony, I asked him a bunch of questions about the internal combustion engine and principles of flight, and I was going to get into thrust-to-weight ratios of jet engines, but I realized he was not a qualified witness, so I didn't go down that road. Not a very effective witness, right? I mean, yeah, he knows enough to be dangerous, (laughs) just like you and I do, right? Knows enough about to be dangerous, but... He's not an expert on those issues. But then I asked him some questions about some other things, right? About diabetes and about his brother Ben. And what's the difference? Yeah, it's personal. That stuff that I asked Jake about diabetes and about his brother Ben are imprinted 
on Jake's life. Jake can no more get away from diabetes as much as he would like to. He can no more get away from his brother's Asperger's syndrome as much as at times he might want to than he could run from here to St. Louis in a day or in a series of days. He can't get apart from those things. Those things are absolutely imprinted on Jake. They're imprinted on his life. And Jake, not knowing what questions I was going to ask him, was obviously ready to answer whatever it is that I was going to ask. And he was the most effective witness that we could have possibly had on those two subjects. I could not have asked anyone else in this room, including Steph, questions about Jake's diabetes or Jake's brother's Ben that would have been more expert than the testimony that Jake just gave because it was imprinted on Jake's life. Uh, To me, that is the symbol of what it means to be a passive-aggressive witness for Christ. Right? Think about... um, Think about what we had here before. Be prepared to make a defense. Jake was not always prepared to make a defense, either about the principles of flight, the internal combustion engine, but his life and his experience has made him constantly prepared to speak about diabetes and his brother Ben. And we all have those things that are imprinted on our lives that we are able to speak about and be expert witnesses at a moment's notice, right? The, th- the third implied thing in here that Jake demonstrated very well in our text, sorry, the second implied condition, is that there's a reason for the hope that is in you. So the text doesn't say that we need to always be prepared to defend our faith no matter what, nor does it say that we always need to pre- be prepared to make a defense to anyone that asks you about your faith no matter what. There's a second implied condition in here, and it's this that anyone that asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The second implied condition in this text that we've been looking at is that there is hope with inside of you. That there is hope with inside of you. There is something imprinted on Jake's life that causes people to ask questions. Think about the Shroud of Turin again, and this is a depiction. This is an actual photograph of the Shroud itself. The bottom thing at the very bottom is what the shroud actually looks like, 14 feet left to right. These two are enhanced images of the of the man that's on that shroud. Um, One thing that, you know, about this shroud, doctors, I mean, scientists have looked at it, and there is blood, human blood, on this piece of cloth. Now, assuming that this is the burial shroud of Jesus, does anyone else get chills that the blood of Jesus might be on that cloth? I don't know that it is. I don't know that it is. But for the purposes of the next few minutes, just in your mind, imagine that the Shroud of Turin is the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ. There is an image imprinted on that cloth. That cloth itself bears witness to something. It bears witness to the horrible death of a man. It bears witness to a trial. It bears witness to a lot of suffering of this man. That death is imprinted on that cloth. How many of you were part of the, the, um, the Good Friday service, the pilgrimage event that we had here? Um, it, was, it was really powerful. Um, I remember when we got to the other side, to this side, once we walked around, the one that stood out to me, and, I, and 
we were asked to put down, you know, what's the one phrase or word or something that you heard um, from, the, from that evening that stuck with you. And the one that stuck with me was at the table over here with Nikki Habacker. And she anointed us with the oil and she said that we wear the death of Christ on our bodies so that the life of Christ can be seen or known. Something like that. Right? To me, that's the image of the shroud. Right? The death of Christ, assuming that it's real, irrespective of whether it is, assuming that the, that the cloth is real, this cloth bears the image of the death of Christ so that his life and resurrection could be known. Now the difference between this cloth and Jake or this cloth and you and me is that the cloth itself cannot talk, right? But there's something embedded in there. The, the cloth, for what it's worth, has led people to believe in Christ I'm reminded of a friend of mine that, had a, um, that was, a, was a microbiologist, a geneticist microbiologist, getting his PhD. And, and, uh, and he, he said that one day he was in the lab looking at the microscope, looking at the complex organism of cell. He was an atheist, an agnostic, an atheist. And looking through his microscope, he said to himself, I got, I, I, I got to find out about God. And he left the lab as it was, went down to the nearest church and just started asking questions, asking questions and more questions and more questions about who God was. The cloth itself, whether real or not, can spark questions about what is going on here. We are miniature shrouds of Jesus in the same way that the hope that we carry inside of us, that is imprinted inside of us, is this image of the death and possibly the resurrection of Christ. We are mini shrouds. We carry this with us. The best that the shroud can do, whether it's real or not, is to, is to pose questions. All that it can do is to pose questions. It is a very passive witness to something. To something, it's a passive witness. We, by the hope that we carry in our lives, are also passive witnesses to the death and resurrection of Christ. Right? The difference between us and the shroud or a piece of cloth is that we have the ability to speak. And that's why First Peter says, be prepared to make a defense when anyone asks you for the hope that is within you. That this implied task that hope is seeping from me would cause somebody to ask questions is a place of freedom, right? It's a place of freedom. But I have to wonder, what is the hope that seeps from me? Does hope seep from me? Does hope seep from you? Is hope so imprinted on my life that people that see me want to know what's going on and want to ask questions? If not, it's probably because hope is not the thing that shines from me. Hope is not the image. The image of the death and resurrection of Christ is not the thing that people see when they see me, right? I mean, when people see me, what do they see? Do they see a guy that's just like racked by his profession? Do they see a guy worried about his 401k or retirement or, or, or wealth or freedom or leisure or rest, it's stressed by family? What is the thing that people see in me that makes them want to ask questions? Because if it's about 401k, there's always a better expert to ask. If it's about my job, there's always a better expert to ask. If it's about being a father, there's always somebody better to ask than me about what it means to be a good father or a good husband or a good son or all those things. What is the thing that is in me that causes people to ask? What is the thing that's in you that would cause people to be drawn to you, to ask you questions, 
That's what we need to worry about. Not that we need to worry about or stress about it, but that's the thing. In that text, that's the main point. The hope that is within you. That's what I want us to think about today. Um, you've may, you may be sitting here asking yourself that question, what is the thing? Um, and, and maybe you're able, like me, to look and make a frank assessment of yourself and say, hope isn't the thing that people see in me. Uh, again, this is not shame or guilt. This is not shame or guilt. God, Jesus Christ set us free from that too, not to feel shame or guilt in that place. But what I want to do is start us off at that starting point to talk about the hope that is within us and to reaffirm what that is, to redefine it as Justin said in the space of communion today. First Peter, uh, same book, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This imprinting. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of the souls. The thing about 1 Peter is that this was not a letter written to a church about how to be good witnesses. 1 Peter was written to a church basically as an instruction on how to exist. How do you keep on going? He was talking to a church that was facing very real persecution. He was talking to a church of people that were being murdered in the streets for their faith. People that were facing trials of every kind and genuine suffering for being Christians. And and Peter was not trying to tell them, here's how you be a good witness. Peter was telling them, here's how you exist in this world. Because you have this hope, this hope that is living, this Jesus Christ that, that we have seen, that we know was crucified and was resurrected from the grave, this Jesus Christ shows up. He has given you an inheritance that will never perish, it will never spoil, it will never fade. Peter was writing this to a people, I mean, on the most basic level, to encourage them to know that through these trials, there is an inheritance in heaven that God has stored for you. But it's not just about getting off this earth to go to heaven. You've heard us say this before. It's a living hope that exists today. Um, so many times, there's, there's, there's one other implied thing in the text. In, in, our first, in our chapter 3 text, there's one other pl- implied condition, and that's the condition of suffering. Because hope like this does not show up if it does not exist in, in conjunction with suffering. And that's what Peter is talking about. So many times, we try so very hard to be free from suffering and trial. And I think what Peter is saying is don't. <laughs> Embrace the suffering. Embrace the trial. Um, In one of the songs we sang, it's pretty funny. There was a typo. Did you catch it? To be free from the yoke of death, of life and death. To be free from the yoke. There might have been another typo. Typos are okay. It's not a big deal. But I I, I laughed with with Olivia, my wife, about this because it was like, um, it, it fits. I mean, so many times what we want is just the egg white of life, right? We want to be free of the yoke of life and death. 
the yoke, if you look at it that way. Now, the, the word is the yoke that you carry as a burden, but yeah, why do we so often try to just have an egg white life that is free from trial and suffering? The implied condition of our hope is that we would suffer, we would face suffering, and we would face trial. Listen, folks, suffering takes all sorts of, of, of um, uh, forms. Physical suffering, disease, conditions. Suffering is constant in our lives. Suffering is constant in our lives. And hope can be found in that place. And when the world is looking at the church, that's when they're looking at us. They're not looking at us when we're thriving and just when our, when our doors are filled and the church is just being the church. They look at us when we are suffering. And in that place, God gives us a living hope, an eternal hope, that there is something that makes this all worth it. And it's that hope of Jesus Christ, his life and his death. Right? That's the passive, aggressive way that, that, um, that he calls us to be witnesses. Suffering is an inherent part of this. The thing about the hope that we have is that it's not, you know, it's not what's called a forlorn hope. You know, this hope that is just desperate. Like, I want to believe that something good is going to happen. Our hope is living. Our hope is real because of the death and resurrection of Christ. This is the hope that Peter talks about in chapter 1. And I'm going to read it again. might read it twice more. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Listen, the starting point for being free from a paralysis of confession or being healed from that confession paralysis is that we know this. We do not need to be experts on everything that God says. His word is there for us to explore, but we do not need to be experts on how, how God does anything. We do not need to know that. Jake, how did God create the heavens and the earth? <laughs> We've had this conversation. <laughs> well, do you know? How did he do it? He wasn't there. This is a conversation that Jake and I have had, so that's why I was able to call him. I don't know. I don't know how God did this. How did God raise Jesus from the dead? By his Holy Spirit. How? I don't know. I don't know. We are not called to be experts on internal combustion of our faith. We're not called to be the expert witnesses on the principles of flight. We're not called to be that. What we are responsible for is to be expert witnesses on what God has done in our lives. Be ready. Always be ready 
to give an answer for anyone that asks you for the hope that is within you. It's not about being an expert on all of those other things. There is no one that is a better expert than me on what the impact of Jesus' death and resurrection has had on me. There is no one that is a better expert than you on the impact that his life and death and resurrection have had on you. It is not on you to, to save somebody else. It is not on you to make somebody believe. It is on you to be ready to explain the reason for the hope that is within you. <sighs> Freedom. Freedom from captivity of paralysis. We don't need to be paralyzed by that. Look, Jesus said that you will face trials and suffering of many kinds. Jesus said that you would be despised and rejected by the world. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. There's no point in trying to have an egg white life. We need to embrace that yoke, right? It's going to happen. Do it with gentleness and respect, but there is no one that is a better expert than you on the hope that is within you. If you're here today, you're here today either because you have hope inside of you that is rooted in the resurrected Jesus Christ, or you're looking for hope. If you're looking for hope, ask, because there's lots of people here that have hope inside of them and that want to share it. But if you're here today, it's because that hope is within you. Um, Witnessing, confessing Christ means presenting a picture of hope through suffering that people will simply wonder who you are and ask what it is that's about you. This is the baby steps of passive-aggressive witnessing, right? Um, Speak about what his suffering, his life, his death, his resurrection has meant to you. That's the first step in in to be free from the paralysis of confession. I'm going to read it one more time for us. Um, This, again, is the hope that is within you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in that last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let us be filled with hope and joy that is grounded in Jesus Christ. So a couple of uh, quick observations. Um, by all means, don't, don't leave here saying, you know, Cornerstone is preaching that the Shroud of Turin is real. That's a weird thing. Don't make this about that. <laughs> I'm more than willing to talk about it with anyone. In fact, Olivia says I should have like a support group of people, and I, I think that's probably a good thing. Secondly, um, as it pertains to suffering, when I say embrace suffering, it's not to say, like, man, just bring it on. You know, I just want to wallow in this horrible stuff, right? Suffering stinks. Like, it hurts. And, and we know that. And God, more than anything, wants us to be whole. He wants us to be healed. He wants us to be whole, heart, 
mind, body, soul. Wholeness is what he's after, and he wants to heal us too. It's not that he wants us to suffer for suffering's sake, but it's through that suffering that we can have hope, that the hope can be seen and, and be known, like Joyce said. That was just beautiful. And then lastly, um, you know, I, I had pointed out Steph, <laughs> Steph you know, is not an expert witness on Jake's suffering, but Steph experiences that too. We experience each other's suffering. And we in that place are experts on what that means for us in that place with somebody else suffering. What the death and life and resurrection of Christ means for your suffering can mean something to me as well. And he's called us to be a body together, to share in that suffering together. And that too is what the world will see. That too will be the thing that causes the world to ask questions. What is going on in there, right? What is going on in there? That's, that's what we need to shoot for. Um, yeah, I'm just going to read this over as a benediction, then we'll pray. Again, this is out of 1 Peter. This is Peter talking to that same church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Jesus, we thank you so much um, for your death, for your life, for your resurrection, God. Thank you for the hope that you have given to us that is not perishable. It cannot fade and it cannot be spoiled. God, may we be people of hope. First and foremost, not people with the answers, but God, would you make us people of hope. Uh, Cornerstone, over you, I pray a blessing that God would redefine hope for you that you would come to know his unperishable, unspoilable, unfadable hope deeper than you have ever known it before, so that you would be prepared when you are asked by somebody for the reason for the hope that you have, that you can point to Jesus confidently and as an expert witness of his impact on your life. Um, God, we thank you uh, for who you are. We thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the uh, enduring, rich blessing of mercy that you have showered over us by your blood, by the blood of your son Jesus. We pray in his beautiful, glorious, and holy name. Amen.